Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Srilata Raman. She is a professor of Hinduism at the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto. We'll be speaking about a brand new Rutledge publication, a fascinating work called The Transformation of Tamil Religion. Uh, Srilata, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. Very very happy to be here. Yes, and happy to have you here. It's very rare that I have a podcast guest that's in the same city as I am. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, you're now full professor at the University of Toronto. That's excellent. Yes, yes. Um, I can't, I'm, I'm really happy about it as well. Yes, well, it's quite an achievement uh, at the Academy. And so this book of yours, now, um, tell us a bit about the backstory. Um, Clearly, these these research interests have been around for a while for you, but is there a particular impetus behind this project? Yes, there is. Well, um, uh, I had, uh, you know, my training in Germany. And in Germany, it's... uh, once you've done your doctorate, uh, you have to do a second degree to qualify for professorial jobs. It's called a habilitation. And usually what they require of you for a habilitation is an entirely different topic and area of expertise than what you did for your doctorate, because the idea is to be able to show that you can do a breadth of work uh, to qualify for a professorial position. So it was very clear to me that my first book, which was on Vaishnavism, uh, you know, I couldn't just do more work on Vaishnavism for a a habilitation uh, or a habilitation, as it's called in English, but I had to think about something completely different. And, um, And then I was mentioning this to the person whom actually I've dedicated the book to, V. Gita, who's a, who's a great scholar and intellectual of Tamil religion and who also just happens to be a friend of mine. And well, not of Tamil religion, of Tamil uh, literature and Tamil nationalism, basically. And I said to her, I, I really need to, you know, be doing something completely different, not uh, Vaishnava, not, uh, you know, the whole Sanskritic Brahminical milieu. And she said, well, there is this very interesting figure called Ramalinga Swamigal. And um, I don't know, you might find him interesting because he was also such an important poet, right? And then that's how it started. I, I, I just, and then I just discovered that, and this happens, I think, to people quite a lot, to, that I had learned as a child several songs, which 
are very beautiful, very simple songs um, without knowing they had been composed by him. I mean, one doesn't know the composer necessarily when one learns songs as a child. And, and then I thought, oh, heavens, I mean, that's, that's very interesting. And that's how it started. It started with uh, wanting to look at something completely different. And then it ended up being this something that I la- actually I've labored over for, you know, more than a decade. Um, and this has been the result. A fascinating read. Certainly you put this figure on the map, at least, uh, you know, for me, I mean, there may be others who might be more uh, aware of, of this, uh, of this uh, saint. Um, um, tell us a bit for our, our more generalist audience, who is this figure? Okay, so Ramalinga Swamigal is this figure um, from, a, from a relatively, uh, from a less prestigious caste in the Tamil country, who, you know, he, as I point out in the book, he's not, I mean, he's like many other figures who emerged in the 19th century from more subaltern backgrounds, who were, due to the colonial moment, were, you know, became interested in starting a new religious movement of some kind, you know, were interested in certain kind of reformist ideals, inspired by the pan-Indian, you know, socio-religious reform, including particularly the Brahma Samaj, which had a huge impact nationwide in the 19th century, which has not been explored that much actually in the in the sources this far. So he starts off as that. And then he is actually, um, and I say that in the book, he's it's actually a failure. Uh, he, he sort of is, he, he, I mean, he writes, he, he wrote a prolific uh, corpus of poetry and then some prose works and then, but it never really took off. And interestingly, when I spoke to one of his eminent biog- uh, hagiographers, Ura Nadigal, as to why it didn't take off, Ura Nadigal told me this fascinating, said to me, well, you see, he said, Ramalingar wanted uh, you know, was propagating vegetarianism in a huge way, you know, and, the, and non-killing of animals. And so to, uh, 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 to a people uh, of, you know, his caste background and others who were traditionally always had a non-vegetarian diet, have been meat eaters. So this was not going down well, said Uranadigal. You, know, you can't build a, a phenomenal movement expecting people to change their dietary habits, just Whatever. I found this a fascinating take. Regardless, he did not, it did not take off. Uh, it only takes off a good um, almost half a century after his fascinating disappearance, which I write about in the book, uh, thanks to uh, uh, the Tamil political movement. He's adopted by, um, you know, he, his movement is, is supported by. Um, Omandurar, who becomes very briefly the chief minister of Tamil Nadu. But then he gets picked up by this family of this the, uh, sugar baron family, Pollachi Mahalingam, who's a very fascinating figure himself. And that family basically single-handedly helps to transform, uh, you know, make, you know, make him well known. He gets picked up by the Dravidian nationalist movement and the self-respect movement because of his more radical writing in the latter years of his life. And then he becomes pretty much the 
secular, within quotes, Dravidian saint. And in fact, uh, the current Tamil Nadu government has made his, has, has actually declared his birthday a day of, it's called the day of special uh, benevolence, Tani Perunkarune, day to celebrate. So it's, it's sort of really the apotheosis uh, very nicely just when my book is coming out. So this is this figure. I also point out that uh, figures like Ramalinga sink into obscurity. Uh, and there are lots of them in the 19th century. Perhaps not every single one who wrote as much and as beautifully and some amazing poetry like he did. But there are several figures, but they don't make it into, you know, into a kind of, uh, into this sort of situation you know, where he, you know, you become famous in some way. Uh, and, I, and I point out that usually a local saint uh, is only makes, you know, it's, it's like, a, like a language is, you know, a dialect is, becomes a language with an, a dialect is a language with an army, right? Uh, or a dialect with an army becomes a language. So a saint becomes famous if he has a very good hagiographer or hagiographers, and if he or she has a, 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 a nice little corpus and uh, 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 in the 19th century onwards, a really good editor, somebody who is sort of, ed you know, bringing out the works and commenting on it, editor, commentator. And Ramalinga was very fortunate in that in his foremost disciple, Thoruvur Velayda Mudara, he had a brilliant sort of editor and commentator of his works. And that, of course, helped to raise him to the status which he enjoys today, not just in Tamil Nadu, by the way, but in Malaysia, in Singapore, wherever there's the Tamil diaspora, but particularly Malaysia, and he's very famous. I find this particular line of thought, this lens, so intriguing. You know, um, you know, how do you make it as a saint? You know, yes, <laughs> how exactly. do you make it? It's sort of like an American idol in, a, in an alternate universe situation yeah. where where many people audition, but but who made it and and why? And and yeah. and and, and uh, of course, you touched on uh, um, some key elements, uh, at least in this case. Um, I, I'm wondering if, in in your view, do you see other and the analogs in Hinduism, um, uh, other figures that you, who you might see as having a similar rise, whether they're well known or not. Yes, well, you know, uh, I think that, I mean, I think if one could possibly say that of any of the key figures of colonial modernity, you know, whether it's Ram Mohan Roy. Uh, whether it's Keshav Chandra Sen, all of these people. I think the big difference, I mean, the difference is you don't see that first, you, you don't, in Ramling's case, you have a lapse into obscurity between 1874 when he disappears and the 1930s. And then he's resurrected, right? And I mean, I think a parallel is what perhaps it's not too far fetched to say that sort of sort of parallel uh, which you have with, you know, say, uh, uh, you know, Sardar Patel now in India. I mean, it's not that uh, Patel, Vallabhai Patel was ever obscure. That's obvious. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But, but you know, suddenly having a monumental statue put up by the Narendra Modi government and, and evoking him so consistently that, 
and then a new biography comes out about him, I think came out about five years ago. So there is a, a renewed interest and then there's a major revival of the figure's popularity, right? Uh, and in Ramlinger's case, the, the, the difference between his being relatively obscure to now, I mean, that's, I think there was a rupture, a, a very definite rupture. But you, you see that, I think, with other figures who get adopted and adapted to certain national or regional nationalistic purposes. Fascinating. So for your monograph, what sources or types of sources or data are you looking at? Okay, so I began by looking at the hagiographies and then the later biographies. But I was, uh, it's actually, the book is, is actually in two parts because it's actually both the man and his work. And I think uh, what Ramalinger is very famous for is a certain doctrine called Jiva Karunyam, uh, which is compassion towards all living beings. And there is this very in, in extraordinary uh, work he wrote uh, called The Conduct of Compassion Towards Living Beings, Jiva Karunya Urukkam, uh, which I've analyzed. So it, I began with the hagiographies and biographies, but of course, they are insistent that the reason why he's so important is because of this doctrine. And then I was, you know, you know, reading literally every word he was writing. And I mean, this is a huge corpus. So that took up a good chunk of my life, just reading everything about him. And what became evident to me, and I think this is, I, so I, I, this is not an exaggeration to say that every single work that has been written on Ramalinger uh, right up to today, and as recent as 2019, when a monograph about him came out, uh, ha, did not really have not explored in any, uh, uh, you know, uh, in any depth where this doctrine comes from. There is an assumption that he almost sort of invented it, or of course he was inspired by the whole ethical turn in colonialism about how Hinduism is not ethical enough or needed to be more ethical or whatever. But it's at that it's at that level of generalities, but. I felt, I mean, after spending years on this, that, that it was still eluding me and I wasn't satisfied with thinking about uh, this doctrine as something you know, that he just conjured out. So then I started to read the works that he himself published, which were some of them, which were made, no, which he actually retrieved from relative obscurity and published. Um, and by publishing, gave it a wide audience. And then... I realized that Ramalinger, and I had this discussion with Brian Hatcher once, that Ramalinger is, you know, there are certain figures from the 19th century, particularly the first half, who, who cannot be understood without understanding that they are intellectually linked to a pre-modern past very strongly, which goes back several centuries before them, because they are still in an unbroken line of learning which is changing very rapidly, but they still have learned in that traditional way. So you cannot do justice to these figures without basically going back. And I went back to Tamil Shaivism from the 15th to the 19th centuries and, and discovered where he was coming from. So the book is actually 
you know, it does two things. One is, of course, it's looking at how uh, Ramalinger and his hagiographies and how he's he's uh, he's changed uh, changes Tamil religion in the 19th century and beyond. But the other really important thread, which might be of interest to scholars of pre-modern Hinduism, is uh, the genealogy of certain kinds of works of Tamil Shaivism, which are both the Tamil Shaiva Siddhanta and Tamil Veera Shaivism from the 15th to the 19th centuries. How might you characterize uh, his primary influence or impact on tradition or legacy, if you will? Uh, you mean the legacy he's left behind? Correct. You know, how, how, how would you characterize the, the impact he's had? His impact, as I said, has been, I think his impact uh, keeps changing and growing. He he became very important for uh, Dravidian nationalism in the 1920s, which saw in him the possibility of uh, accepting at least some aspect of Tamil Shaivism that seemed more ethical, that seemed more caste critical. And... uh, so he becomes favored, but his subsequent impact has been, uh, as I said right now, uh, a very set conscious construction of a non-Hindutva, Dravidian, secular, regional sort of, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> sort of ethical uh, position, and he's become important for that. But his, I would say his lasting legacy has been, I mean, very, very simple. That uh, the, and that's how his organizations, which still exist, actually see their, you know, see as their primary motivating factor to exist, which is feed the poor, feed the starving uh, when uh, they need it. Uh, and make food available, you know, regardless of caste and creed and so on. Um, So uh, the big thing was when the COVID was happening and there was obviously, uh, you know, rural India, we all know there was tremendous uh, poverty overnight. uh, People couldn't, you know, practice their livelihoods, uh, return to their villages all over India and were suffering from, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, lack of any livelihood. So there was a corresponding increase in in poverty and malnutrition. And uh, one of the things I think the Ramalingar, you know, organizations, particularly the main one in Vadalur, saw as their job was simply to keep open a feeding house to give food to anybody who walked in who was really hungry. And that's, I think, been his very concrete, very lasting legacy. Um, The other thing, for example, uh, there was this fascinating report just from a couple of weeks ago uh, on on WhatsApp, (laughs) uh, which I read about how the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh tried to go and start... uh, uh, exercises in a maidan in uh, in Vadalur, the headquarters, and basically the devotees of uh, Ramalinga turned up and and told them you can't do this here. We are 
this is Vadalur, it's it's Vallalar as he's known, it's his place. And he never believed in in uh, in any uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of religion. Or he didn't believe in uh, in any religion which separated one from the other. So I mean, obviously, in in popular memory, in in uh, in attitudes, uh, he remain he 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 stands for this even today. Fascinating. You mentioned in passing that your book is in two parts. Um, perhaps you can walk us through the structure of the book. Okay, so the first part is called Retrieving Ramalinga Swamigal. And uh, what I do in that is I, uh, I have uh, five chapters where first I look, I, I, I sort of present, um, you know, the life story taken from all the hagiographical sources from, a, you know, sort of if you had to have a template of the life, um, this is what it would look like and of the and of his corpus of writings. And then I move on to uh, uh, the, uh, uh, so that chapter is called Pulavar to Profit, a 19th century life. And then I move on to looking at the early, earliest hagiographies, uh, which are all grappling with the fact that one day he says, supposedly says, well, you know, basically my movement has failed. I opened my shop. Nobody wanted to buy my wares. Uh, I'm leaving. And he goes into a room, closes the door and is never seen again. And of course, uh, supposedly, right? And of course, there are fascinating variations already in what he said and, and how he said it and so on, even in the earliest hagiographies. So I deal with all of that. And I show that for them, uh, he is a sort of quintessential Shaiva saint. Uh, he's a Siddha. Uh, he obviously Siddhas vanish into the light. They have these super, they have these Siddhis or Pas, and he's one of them and so on. But they're they're constantly, they're all also uneasy because they're not 16th century hagiographies, they're 19th century ones. There's, there's an element of unease with all of this anyway. And then I go on to deal with uh I moved to two chapters on uh, where he's actually coming from with this uh, doctrine of jiva karunyam or compassion. And I, I go back and show that it's deeply anchored in Shaivite literature, uh, starting from the 15th century with works like the Urivilodakam and Tugalarubodam and so on. And it's really about the Shiva yogi who reaches a state of, of Shiva realization or Shiva Anubhuti, which then uh, more or less makes them act as, you know, deeply compassionate persons, right? I mean, it's not very different from the Bhagavad Gita idea that the jnani sees everybody the same, you know, Samadrishti and all of that. Uh, and that's... But but what is interesting and fascinating is that the word Jiva Karunyam is repeatedly used both in the Tamil Shaiva Siddhanta and Tamil Veera Shaiva texts particularly to refer to one of the qualities of the Shiva Yogi and as central to the Shiva Yogi. So and then I, I and then I move on to show, but in his own time, his image was deeply contested. I, I have a chapter called the Anti-Hagiography, which shows that. Arumuga Navalar, this very famous Shaiva reformer from Sri Lanka, got into a dispute with Ramalinga, and this resulted 
in what I call the anti-hagiography, uh, uh, which is the Polia Rutpa Marupa, a text which attacks Ramalinga in all sorts of personal polemical ways. And I use that to talk about polemics in the colonial period, about what print does to ideas of authorship, uh, about uh, uh, you know how Ramalinga as a sort of subaltern figure is not conforming to new norms of normativity uh, and therefore is attacked for that. So that's the first part, which is digging, you know, how was he seen in his time where do his doctrines really come from, his sort of inter the intellectual genealogy and the older hagiographies? The second part called uh, Recreating Ramalinga Swamigal, which is four chapters, begins uh, with two chapters which are really dwelling on what is happening to Shaivism as a public way of being and practicing between 1874 and the 1950s. Uh, it's about Shaiva associational activity. What are Shaiva, the so-called Shaiva organizations in the Tamil region doing? So the two things I'm doing there, one is I'm complicating the idea that, uh, you know, modern Shaivism is emerging, emerging only in a rural milieu. I'm showing that, that it's happening all over, both in rural, urban, semi-urban contexts. Only in the historiography of modern Shaivism, it only the urban is emphasized. I go on to show how some of these Shaiva organizations actually run by women. So I speak about something like civic religion and how women are actually important players in it as well. And then I talk about a figure uh, from who's a, a traditional religious head from a Mata, Nyanya Radigal, who was very active in the creation of what I would call modern Shaivism, but who has since been, you know, relatively forgotten because he doesn't fit in neatly into a paradigm of an urban a production of modern Shaivism or neo Shaivism, which is happening in the encounter with Western Orientalists. And then I say all this happens, and then we have the later hagiographers slash biographers who were very important political figures in the Tamil region in the 1940s and 50s. One is Tiruvi Kalyana Sundaranar, who is really the more interesting figure, Gandhian Marxist Shaivite, and what he does with Ramalingar. And then you have Mapo Sivanyanam, who is a Congress a figure, but a Dravidian nationalist and what he does. And then I end with the chapter, what I call Ramalinga Redux, which is, you know, how he, his, his re in, in, you know, his re-emergence in, in the landscape of the Tamil country. So that's pretty much the book. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, if you'll indulge me, just one uh, question for a more generalist audience. Um, could you say a word or two about uh, Dravidian nationalism? Yeah, so Dravidian nationalism is, is what you could call a, both a cultural and a political movement and has its emergence in the latter decades, the last couple of decades of the 19th century through first, you know, the discovery of the Tamil classics, of Sangam literature, so the antiquity of Tamil literature feeds into it. Uh, it starts with the discovery, uh, the linguistic discovery of the Dravidian, um, the Dravidian languages, as opposed to the Indo-European, the Aryan, 
Uh, missionaries play a huge role in it. Robert Caldwell, G.U. Pope. So it's, it's sort of cultural. Uh, and then it gains a huge impetus with the emergence of uh, the Justice Party in the colonial period, uh, which decides that the interests of the Tamils uh, or the Southern people is not adequately represented by the Indian National Congress. Particularly, the Congress is seen as a party, not just of Gandhians, but of Brahmins. And so what happens to the non-Brahmins? And so the Justice Party morphs into the self-respect Swayamariyade movement, which takes a very strong anti-Brahmin, anti-Sanskrit, anti-Aryan, anti-North India uh, in, its, uh, in a certain phase stance and for a regional pride, a regional nationalism. And so uh, the, that movement of Dravidian nationalism has a very critical, uneasy relationship with Tamil religion for obvious reasons, because it feels, uh, because a lot of the production of uh, the literature of Tamil was heavily influenced, or there was a mutual interaction with Sanskrit, which led to a huge production of literature in the monasteries or matas. And uh, the, the Dravidian movement is about break, you know, sort of rupturing the ties between Tamil and Sanskrit. Uh, but as, as I try to show, the, that is one of the reasons why Ramalingar is understood not in his context, in modernity, in Tamil modernity, because to know that he was deeply influenced by works like the Uruvilodika, the Chinmaya Deepika, that he actually, by the Tamil Shaiva Siddhanta, is problematic because the Tamil Shaiva Siddhanta has so much of Sanskrit in it as well, right? So Dravidian nationalism is about rupturing that relationship and speaking for the pure and authentically Tamil. But of course, they still wanted, you know, they want, they saw in Ramalinga the potential for uh, some rapprochement with Shaivism, which was more critical, particularly caste critical, which was more ethical, um, and so on. But to have the Ramalinga they wanted, they had to ignore a huge part of his intellectual trajectory. You mentioned in passing that there might be those interested, particularly in this in this main thread of this this intellectual link um, um, to a pre-modern past. For example, um, what um, um, who might most benefit from the book? What what subfields are implicated or discussed? Uh, could you say a bit about that? Yeah. Okay. So, at a, in a in a sort of fairly uh, indological way, people working on the textual sources of Tamil Shaivism from uh, its emergence uh, in, in uh, particularly the 14th century onwards, I think would find this, of, I hope, of great interest because it's looking at works that people have not looked at yet. So that's the narrowest field. The second is anybody interested in subaltern religion would, I think, find it really interesting because I show how Ramalinga is not the only one picking up on Jiva Karunya, but the other major intellectual, like uh, you know, Dr. Ambedkar, but in the Tamil country, Ayodhya Das Pandita, this Dalit, towering Dalit intellectual, 
um, is also picking up on Jiva Karunyam and possibly from the very similar sources as Ramalinga. And there are other Dalit figures like Isu Sachiranand Swami girl, who's also picking up on Jiva Karunyam. Only none of them have been looked at for Jiva Karunyam. So it's also really about uh, how subaltern figures uh, are, uh, you know, uh, rethinking uh, uh, religion and religious ethics in this period. So I think anybody interested in subaltern religiosity in the colonial period would find that those chapters interesting. And uh, the, uh, a big thread in the book is about hunger and discourses of hunger in Tamil literature and uh, the issue of the starving body, but the gendering of the starving body as well. So how the starving body is, you know, very off. In Ramalinga, the starving body is male. But then I go back to looking at a long textual genealogy of starvation and hunger, which actually is part of uh, another project I'm doing. But, but so hunger, starvation, and how is it dealt with uh, from as literary representation? Uh, that might be of interest to people who work on that as social historians and as people who work on literatures of hunger generally. Now, turning to this tantalizing thought of this other project you're working on, tell us about um, uh, what next or what other, uh, what is this other project, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, well, there are two things. One is a book which I've called Pasipini, which is just going to be translations of sec of, of uh, works on uh, literary, you know, novels, uh, from the Sangam and so on about how hunger is talked about uh, in Tamil literature. So that's, I'm hoping to just have a collection of works uh, in, uh, you know, um, the, the English and uh, the Tamil and then the English, a kind of uh, bilingual work. But my big project is one I, I'm now calling, and I'll probably change the name, I'll just call it Dalit Vedanta, which is really about figures far more obscure than Ramalinga, who were writing these very erudite texts in the 19th century, which are squarely within the realm of a, a, a Shiva Advaita, a, a Shaivite sort of monism, uh, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, which becomes uh, central uh, to, to, uh, uh, to the Tamil Shaiva Siddhanta, Tamil Veera Shaivism. Uh, by the 19th century. So uh, what are they writing? And, and, it, and I find that the retrieval of it may be important uh, in some ways, I hope, as a contribution towards Dalit historiography in the Tamil region, but then in a pan-Indian way. But it's all, this is all at a very incipient stage. I've just finished oh, uh, the book, so uh, well, yes, you've you've just given birth, so you have to <laughs> yes. take a bit of take a bit of a break. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But um, you know, uh, post gestation of these other works, perhaps you'll be back on the podcast. You're welcome anytime. Um, Thank you so much. I also wanted to share one very important uh, point about the book. Um, for those of uh, yeah, uh, so uh, let's put it this way: I happen to have uh, two books out by Rutledge, and my students can't afford them. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I, I, you know, this is just the, the way of the world in publishing, but I, I, I couch uh, the fact that this book is um, um, uh, open access. 
Yes. Right, and this is uh, this is not <laughs> this is not a small boon. Insofar as in the podcast notes, you'll have a link to this book, and just uh, magically, mystically, by a couple of clicks of your thumbs or, or forefingers or what have you, you'll have this work um, uh, available to you, open access. So, if you're at all interested, by all means, go and check it out. Um, Shrilata, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you, Raj, for giving me this opportunity to talk about something that's obsessed me for a very long time. <laughs> My pleasure. This is what we do. We, we help people deal with their obsessions, their, their scholarly obsessions on the podcast. That's excellent. So for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Srilata Raman, who's professor at the department, um, professor of Hinduism at the Department for the Study of Religion at uh, the University of Toronto. We've been speaking with her about her brand new 2022 Rutledge publication, The Transformation of Tamil Religion. Uh, until next time, um, uh, stay safe, uh, stay sane, um, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating um, uh, ancient Indian saints. Take care.